Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 82 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name is Bagiti Kumalo. I'm a bass player for many years. And, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and then also I'm a music mentor and I teach young musicians. It's a real honor to speak to you, BK. Um, I've, I, I was obviously Thank introduced you. to you, I think much in the same way many people were probably introduced to you by this, this little album in 1986 called <laughs> Graceland by Paul Simon, where some of the foundational bass grooves that you played definitely changed the way we play. But I also think it really brought a new way of music into our world. Maybe not your world as you knew, knew it being from South Africa, but I think to the greater world. Um, it's also interesting that a lot of people do consider that album the beginning of world music even, or, or the commercialization of it, or the, the way that that music was brought forth. Could you ever have imagined playing on that album and being in this place where that album has has shaped music and musicians and the bass in so many different ways? Man, I would say um, it was about the timing. And the timing, I think it was, it was right. It was about to, uh, that needed to happen. And for me as a kid growing up in South Africa, every, we were so limited that there was not much. You gotta be creative in order to survive. And my thing was about respect the, the community and learn from the community because there's so much. You know, I grew up in a place where there's different tribes of people from different, you know, Zulu, Kosa, Sutu, Shangan, Zwanapedi. And these people, they loaded with, you know, all the culture stuff that's happening. And for me, being a musician was to just get to know these people before I see the world or, or show the world or know the world. But, and then I started with their music, started to pay attention on what they're doing, what they're singing, and uh, even though the language was a little different than some other cultures, but rhythmic music was, was unbelievable. So for me, my ears was like really listening to everything. And then, being blessed that I was born in a in a house where my uncle was a musician, so I kind of pick it up from him, you know. And uh, my grandmother running the church. Sometimes they come at home and pray at home, and uh, and so he was really, really very, very active. But during the system, also that was also brutal to everything. But uh, for me, it was about pay attention on what you want to do. You know, because it's not going to come easy, but, you know, I had to put a lot of time in it. And as I grew up, man, and then I started to hear about American music. That's when I really started to pay attention. You know, bass players, amazing bass players from the States. And I said, man, I, I, I want to play like that. <laughs> not like them, but at least to have the feel and then the approach on the music. Like, you know, South African music, it's one, four, one, five. It's a very simple groove, but in between, you know, there's vocals, guitar stuff that's happening. So me as a bass player, what should I do? You know, I can have a pocket and sit with a drummer 
but at the same time I need to have some things that's gonna change but that happens later you know when I needed the base until my mother bought me a fretless and that's when I started to find a real different voice than you know other bass because everybody was playing fretted and I couldn't afford fretted the only time I play fretted is when I go to the music stores and because uh, I, I, I didn't have one I didn't have any instrument so I go to the music stores like weekend and play the basses and try, try to get used to it until I got kicked out one time they said don't play anything because you come here every time you don't buy anything you just <laughs> you just play so and then this guy then he saw that I was very interested the, the guy from the music store he, he saw that I was very interested and then he just pointed the fretless if you want to play something play that one nobody wants to play that one go for it and then I took fretless and I hated myself because and I'm like what the heck in the world there's no lines I can't see the damn thing <laughs> you know yo this is going to be a problem but because it was the cheapest instrument so I bought it took it home and I practiced a little bit it was a disaster the tonation was so <laughs> I mean like unbelievable and then I'll put the bass away like you know I'm just so exhausted with this thing but the more I play, Fretless just told me, like, hey, look, you know, you know, I'm not like the other regular bass, you know, this, this, you gotta work for this. And then I would learn this, the pop songs, like you're playing Marvin Gaye song or, or, you know, the traditional South African song. But my tunation was so bad that the singer would complain and hold the ears and say, something's wrong, but they look at me like, maybe it's you. You're the bass doesn't have the line. <laughs> The face oh, that, doesn't have the line, and then you know. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there that I'm re I'm 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 fascinated with all the time. I want to start going back in, in your history and talk about this house of music that you grew up in, because yeah. it's easy to grow up in a house of music, and it's easy to be shown things like the piano or or a horned instrument. The bass is a strange one. So your uncle was playing bass, and how old are you when you? No, my uncle will play saxophone. Okay, okay. So, so how did the bass come into this? So now my uncle, every Saturday, his friends, they come at home and practice. But uh, the bass player was playing the stand-up bass. And I mean, for me, it was like, what is this? I mean, I like to play this thing, but I'm 12 years old, you know, but uh, how do you do that? So that's when I started to ask my uncle's bass player the questions about the strings you know, and everything. And then I look at his hands. It looked like, you know, it was like a sculpture or something. Cause <laughs> yeah. Billy, that, Billy Sheen used to say, uh, those, those hands look like they could just crack coconuts. It's <laughs> just like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, his hands, when you shake your hand, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. So, and then, but every time he comes home and he would tell me the names of the strings, and then I started to learn, and, and also just to get to used to the bass, that sound. And uh, one time, I think he had too much to drink. Now I was about like, you know, 13, 14 years old. <laughs> and uh, he was playing now the electric bass also as well. So and then uh, he didn't show up at the, at the gig, and my uncle says, you've been watching him. Did you learn anything? And I said, I think I can do it, <laughs> you know. I think I can do it, and then I uh, I went to play with my uncle. I was messing up, but people loved it because I was a kid. And then I knew I got them. I said, "This is gonna work." Were you playing other instruments at the time, BK, or, or was that like your first time really playing an instrument? Uh, I was 
bouncing, you know, back and forth. Sometimes, you know, if the uh, uh, the band has, you know, the, the local bands, they have a bass player, you know, but they don't, they need a guitar player. So that's when also two ahead come in. I don't play chords. I just play like, you know, the muted stuff, you know, with my thumb and, and, uh, and create a guitar part or play the, with the bass player, play the part. And then, so I did that one time and the bass player left the band. So that's when I stay with the bass. I left the guitar. And tell me a bit about that store. I mean, it's such a weird story to hear because normally in the normal world, people don't, they don't have fretless basses in the store because when people try them out, they wreck the neck and then they can't sell the bass because the neck is wrecked. So it's interesting that, that that's the bass you saw, that that's the bass you bought. I know you said you bought it because it was the cheapest, but had you heard that sound before when you were playing it in the store where you like, the sound is so different than the bass that you had heard on those songs from, you know, Bob Babbitt and, and those types of players? No, the sound, I heard the sound after I bought the bass. You know, I mean, I needed an instrument with the four string that I can play, but the instrument that was cheap, $100, was the fretless <laughs> and the fretless I mean I've never had I mean I was thinking like wow okay my my uncle played the big bass which is a fretless yeah <laughs> so but it's big you know but this one is what kind of bass so but but uh I bought it and I took it home and then like you know a couple of weeks later and then some of my friends they knew about you know weather report they brought the Weather Report album. This guy was like, you got to listen to this. And it sounds like the bass that you have. And uh, that's when I listened to Jaco and I said, no, I don't think this, you know, we, we had an argument. Like, this was a trombone. It was not a bass. <laughs> you know, because the, the sound was different, <laughs> you know. But he said, yeah, that's right. That's the same bass. It, it, it's the same sound, you know. And... Uh, you know, but uh, but what saved me from playing the fretless was the traditional uh, music in South Africa, like like the song "Boy in the Bubble" because he's accordion. So I had to listen to the accordion player, his left hand when he's playing the bass note. So that's when I, I got bomb, 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 you know, to get that sound. But then I stay with the fretless really to to find the voice because it's almost like a human voice. You know, and in South Africa, listening to like Lady Smith, Black Mambazo, you hear this voice. So I took that fretless to those voices to come up with that sound. And then, you know, and then doing all kinds of recording now at the age of 14, 15 with the traditional uh, South African music, you know. So that's when I started to use the fretless. And then that's when I developed my sound that I like this, you know. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because I was, I was watching a documentary about Graceland and and the 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 artists and Lady Lady Smith Black Mombasa were saying that it was the first time they had done recording with instruments, <laughs> and that and that had thrown them off. So it was, it's interesting to hear that you were playing to their voices only, and then the first time they're recording with instruments is later in life with you. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, because, you know, Lady Smith, Black Mambas, it was a kind of group. There was plenty of them. Like, every weekend, some of those guys, they work in the mi- uh, in the mines. So when they work in the mines, weekends, they, they're off, they're free Saturday or Sunday, and then their families, they go to the place. And then they form a group where they do the acapellas, you know, like they do up, uh, you know, with, without the, the bands. So, but when Paul had them uh, their music and he loved what they were doing but he and then you know because he's a, he's a genius to uh, 
to make sure that everything works. And uh, so I remember when we did a, uh, it was a diamonds. When we did the diamonds, they sang in different key. And then when the band comes in in a different key in F, but ladies meet Black Mambazo, even when we were in tour, somebody had to bring them, uh, give them the notes so that they can say, uh, she's a rich girl. <laughs> <laughs> because, wow. you know, yeah, because they're not used to that. They're not used to the instrument. The instrument was throwing them off, but they got used to it once Paul, you know, spent time with them. He spent time with them to make sure that now they can sing with the band because he was never done like that in South Africa. Yeah, it's funny too. Like w- one of the comments I always thought about Graceland, it's an album I love, is just how kooky and weird the lyrics are. And if you watch the documentary or hear him talk about it, what you realize is he didn't write the lyrics until after all of the music was written and composed and recorded, which is why it became this weird type of thing. It, it wasn't written in the traditional way. He had to backfill lyrics into this incredible host of different songs. Right, because he had to really find what was working for us, you know, as musicians over there, even though there were some changes, some songs, other people, they had a problem playing a minor chord, you know. For me, it was no problem because, you know, I just play one single note, <laughs> you know. So I don't play the whole chord to play the minor chord, but, you know, guitar player had little trouble to, like, you know, playing the minor chord and uh, Paul will help because it's like, why the minor chord? You know, the major is happy. Everybody's happy in the studio. Yeah. Now, when you play the minor chord, it's like a jazz chord. They call it a jazz chord in South Africa. <laughs> yeah. You're playing a jazz chord. <laughs> but, really- uh, you know, with Paul, it was about really him working with us and mix it up because he's, he, he has the beauty from these people and how can he come in and, 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 and make it work together. And he made it work. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing. It's also an amazing story, and I'd love to get your commentary on just what life was like because apartheid is something that is in our history but is very recent and fresh. And there's a reality to it that I remember and I'm I'm 50, but but still to to remember it so vividly, it's a it's a pretty crazy thing. And you you spoke earlier about it in terms of how hard it is to grow up in. Well, I'm curious what it was like as a musician, as a player, in in the world of entertainment and creativity. What was that like for you? And and I'm also curious what life was like for you after it. Meaning when you went to the states and and when it was eventually you know thankfully dismantled. Yeah, it, it was hard in the beginning. I saw that with my uncle because my uncle, he had to have a, have a day job. And then weekend, he can, you know, hang out with his friend. But for me, it was about really learning and go to each and every part of the township looking for the bass and looking for musicians. But in, in the middle of that, also the police, they're looking for you because they know musicians is the ones that they go and play in the festival. And then... So they can talk about, you know, the system. They, yeah, so the police, they didn't like that idea. They even drive around the township and uh, and looking and listening to some musicians. And then if they hear the band practicing, they go in, they take the instruments, they put them in a, a river or something, you know, just say, no, this, this is not good because you're going to go and talk about the system, sing about the system because they don't understand the language, you know, so but... 
Yeah, it, it was it was a lot of problem, and then also at the same time, even the politicians, the organizations, they will use musicians to say, "Hey, look, we need a band to come and play, so that people can come in and uh, so we can tell them what's going on." You know, and so everything was, it was really scary. But one thing for me, I really discovered this at the very early age. And I said, listen, the system here is, is messed up. And uh, and if you follow this, you're going to be redirected. But I don't want to be redirected. I know what I want to do. I want to play music, you know, because the system is it's, it's, it's chaotic. It's, it's, it's crazy. But you have to know what you want to do with yourself because if you don't know, then they're going to give you something to do different, you know. So for me, I took chances. I always took chances, you know. I mean, I was never been on the plane until I got on the plane to come to America. Wow, it's unbelievable! And and, and, and even getting the the passport or papers to come to America was a little disaster because. <laughs> They didn't think that you know uh, I, I would be leaving, and so I had to find a, 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 a white person to help me to take me to the police station to get papers so that I can jump on the jet and then come to New York and record the rest of the Graceland. I couldn't have done that if I was going on my own. They would say, "No, you're not getting, a, you're not leaving," you know. But because I, you know, hired somebody took me to the passport department and then I got my papers to leave the country and uh, yeah he was he was rough and it's still rough you know and I look at my family that I left for years and uh, it's it's just mind-blowing that yeah, nothing is really it's changed from a different problem you know from one problem to another yeah, it's, it, it becomes generational, right? It becomes a generational thing. That, you, that, that even though it, that's over, it's going to impact generations probably Yeah, and forever. then the fact that the worst thing is that when, when you see the problem, but you're not educated, why this problem? Because now the younger generations, they come into a problem that have went through it. I mean, at 65 now, the young people like my son, he doesn't understand that, you know, why I don't have a job and why it's like this now. It's a whole different problem because, okay, you know, Mandela took over, was a president, and but how we continue with this and build the country from the pain that we had before, but the pain is still there for, for the next generation. It's a whole different pain, you know. It's like yeah. you had a neck pain, now you're having a headache pain, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about this moment because you're you're quite successful prior to meeting Paul Simon in that infamous gig. You're a session player. You're working within a tough environment, like we just talked about. So you get this opportunity to meet Paul Simon. I'm curious: Do you believe in his vision right away? Are you skeptical of him? Are you worried that it's going to be an exploitation of what's happening there? What are your thoughts, and how are you thinking about? What does this mean for potentially me as a musician? For me, it was about play the bass. Play the bass. They call me to come to the studio. I'm not looking for problems. I'm just there to play. I was given a chance to play. I will play. And I go to the studio with the bass. I didn't even know who the man was. And uh, the music, I didn't know anything about his music very much until, you know, Mother and Child Reunion. <coughs> you know, but growing up in Township, you know, you hear the Township music very little too. But most like, you know, British music, like Rolling Stone and, you know, 
and, uh, and uh, all, all other bands. But when I got a call to come to the studio, I said to myself, hey, I'm here to play. This is what I love to do. And I just came back from a job. And my boss, who was a South African, white South African, told me that there was a phone call from the studio that they're looking for me. Paul Simon is, you know, is in town. And I'm like, okay. So he gave me the money to take the bus, not the train, because, you know, I always take the train. The train is crowded, and I got the base without, you know, the case to get home. But he says, take the bus, you get there safe, and uh, see you back later. <laughs> <laughs> And then I got to the studio, man, I said, this is where I belong. You know, the sound is unbelievable in the studio. My fretless is saying to me, we're getting out of this, man. You know, you do this right, we're going to be out of here. You know, because that was my plan. You know, that was my plan to go distance. I didn't want to be limited because of the system. You know, system, they don't know what I'm thinking. And I don't know what I'm thinking either. Yeah, You know, so I'm not going to follow that. I don't know. So I took chances. I played in the studio. I just saw heaven as I was playing. And it, and then the engineer, Roy Haley from, from the States, I mean, he came with Paul. This engineer, every note I play, you go to my bass amp and do things that I've never seen anybody does it, you know, in South Africa. And then when he comes back, he's smiling. And when he smiles, it gives me a big smile that my bass is talking and yeah. then now it's for me to think song and not think of a playing notes and all the excitement and everything let me listen to five minutes long song good tone and simple and then when the moment comes in for me to do little things here and there i had a plan i had it planned without talking but did it sound so, but biki did it sound unique to you because I was listening to different types of music, but there's something about your sound and your fills and whether you are in the pocket or doing something different that doesn't sound like anything else. Did Were you able to recognize like, wow, this really does sound different? Or at the time, are you just, I'm going to be me? No, uh, before be me, it was first the instrument. What is the sound of these electronics? You know, how to do I get my sound... I start with the, the, the body of the bass. Where can I rest to get the thing? And what is the groove giving it give to me? So I follow the groove that's giving it to me. And then I got to communicate with the drummer. Let's sit together. I mean, for me, even still today, it's about when I get into the session, I'm like a bus driver or, you know, a pilot. Because it's like, you know, you got this. You don't want to let these people wake up <laughs> as you're driving or flying, you know. You want them to have a good nap, you know. So for me, it's about also listening to the people around. You know, the song is five minutes long, could be same chords, no changes. But how you stay with that five minutes long without losing it? Because when you start getting bored, then you add a lot of notes and that don't mean anything. Because there's somebody doing the same thing that that needs to be heard. Maybe that's more important than what you're trying to do. So for me, it was like stay in the pocket. The pocket saved my life because I stay in the pocket and then when it's needed, I have something. You know, I was never told in the beginning to say you're overplaying. No, <laughs> it was never <laughs> like that. No, once they tell you, hey, you're playing too much, then you know you have a problem because but, you, but you don't have less. But, but that's because, I think it's because, I'd, I'd love your perspective on it, that 
Paul Simon really went in there to experiment too. And so when you're yeah. experimenting, you can't tell somebody, we'll play it like this. The idea is to, to do the opposite of that. Yeah, but somebody like him who's singing, and I've learned this from playing with the traditional people because they're telling the story. It's not the bass is telling the story. The bass is a foundation that the story be told on top of the bass, you know. And uh, so my thing is to listen to the story, be part of the story, understand the story, and then understand the people around you that you're playing with, the guitar player, the drama, the accordion. And me, my thing is to like give them the foundation, good tone, and then settle with the groove. And then when things are needed, then I can play double stops here and there, and then those things too, I don't look for them because they're right there. One of the person is playing, the guitar player was playing a bunch of high stuff. So then I took that, <laughs> you know, I took some of that and then it makes sense on the fretless, especially when there was a space for me to do that. And then, you know, but I, I keep things simple, like, you know, I'm just going to groove. Yeah. Just like back in the day when you listen to Bernard Edwards, that chick, uh, uh, chick, the bass player. He never played a bunch of notes. It was like a pocket and the tone. My goodness. Yeah, it's yeah. unbelievable. So I'm curious, you record over, I think it's a couple of weeks at that session. Paul Simon's going to head back to America. Is there conversation beyond thanks for a great session? Is there conversation that this is going to be a touring band? When do you realize that this music is going to go well beyond just it being an album to the world, but potentially me being on stages heading out there. I uh, really didn't think about uh, it's going to happen or not. But my thing is to say my part is done. Let's see and wait. You know, as a farmer, you, you, you put the seeds, you know, and then you just wait, you know, if, if you put the seeds the wrong season <laughs> and nothing grows, then it's a problem. So harvest, no <laughs> harvest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know. So, but for me, it was like, hey, look, just drop the seeds and then uh, and let go. Not even think about it. So now I got paid, and I'm a different guy in the township because I came from a, a very poor background. Now I don't go back to my boss because I got enough money to look for another job. At least I have something, and. Uh, and the timing was amazing because my mother, too, she was getting sick. She was in the hospital or in and out the hospital, and I wanted to save her. So for me to stop being a musician around and go and look for the day job that I didn't even know because I never work, you know, so it was, a, it was a challenge. When I used to go and look for the job, I take my bass with me. And sometimes the bass become, a, 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 you know, a weapon to somebody who's going to hire me because they think, oh, you know, maybe this guy's going to hit me with this and rob me or something. So the guy always carrying a gun at the, at the shop. But I tell him, hey, I'm a musician. My mother, she's sick and I'm trying to buy some pills for her. And, you know, things are bad in the music business because I'm not making enough money. And the guy hired me and I didn't even know anything. You know, like, what is the wrench? What is the wrench? What it looks like? <laughs> he had to teach me. Yeah? But when he gave me the call to say, because I always uh, gave my friends or producers my number from my job in case, you know, something like this happened. And so they had my number. That's when he let me go. But after the session, I called him. I said, listen, you got to find another guy because I think I'm down here. You know, this is it. I have a bass now with my case. You know, Paulie just hooked me up the right away. 
you know, as soon as I show up in the studio, he's like, hey, do you need another bass? And I said, yes. He bought me another Fender and uh, bought me a case for the fretless. And I go to a place, get my hair done. You know, I was just looking like a different guy in the township. And uh, now, after that, for maybe like two or three months, I had called me out. I take a taxi from somewhere to the township to the city. And I and I hear call me out on the radio. I freak out. I was sitting in the back of the car and then I was jumping around, jumping around people. They they look at me like I was mental or something. The That's driver me. stopped the car. That's the, me. the driver stopped the van and I hit the, my forehead in the window, like back seat. And I tell him, it's me. He says, no, 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 that's not you. You're lying. Shut up. <laughs> but I knew it, man. I knew it. By the time my ride, I finished that ride uh, at the camp, when I get to the city, I knew it. I said, my life has changed. And then I got the phone call, like, you know, a few months later to say, we're going to be in London for a rehearsal five months. What? What a, what a story. Over. It's such a great story. And so that was over. You know, it's funny. This August is 35 years now. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it's 35 years. And I'm 65. I, you know, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Life is life. is Life can be an amazing experience. And what's interesting about the album too, and it's interesting that we're heading into the 35th anniversary of it is I could see moments of it where it was a bit of a process, a protest album to, to the world from Paul look what's happening here. And this is the art and beauty of this place. And we can't let it be subjugated by classism, racism, those things. Yeah. It's an eye opener of an album, right? Musically, when you hear it, it's not like something you've heard. It's a political Christian, album. Like I said earlier, that this record needed to happen. Yeah. And the timing was perfect because it, it, it was a problem for organizations. The organizations that really don't do much for musicians, they step in because they see here comes this international artist. So let's get it from him. You know, record companies, they bring their own musicians that they cannot play very well. And that's why I had to replace a lot of bass players on this record. There was a lot of bass players that they were signed with the label and they slapped the bass like crazy. And they, they I mean, because... They listened to the international, uh, you know, but so they could they couldn't deliver to be original. And for me, who travel, I spent like you know eight months in Zimbabwe, and then I went to Zululand, sixteen months to hang out with the local people and and just get that music from them. I sacrificed for that, so it showed when it comes to the session. The other guys they came in like five strings, some very expensive basses, but they couldn't deliver. <laughs> so and then also the organization they they want to take because they're like no if we can get from this artist we're gonna control this but they don't do anything for musicians they just use them whenever they use them but they don't even build anything for them to say look we're gonna give you something so that you don't have to leave your country you stay home so now somebody comes in and pick the musicians for me it was like look you rather kill me, but I'm not gonna listen to that. I'm listening to me because I'm the one who puts a lot of time learning this instrument. So, yeah, you know, it, I it, took chances. It was also the time, right? We had in 1985 the song "Sun City" from Artists Against Apartheid. There was the, this beginning, but the different. Right. What, what I was trying to get to is that what was different with Graceland is that as much as it, it had all of the components of that 
look what's happening here, the real message was really one of positivity and hope and love. And as much as there was, and it's strange to, to have those differing things, the, the protest, the politicalness, but at the same time, it being so hopeful and joyful and love. It's an amazing piece of art, if not just for that. The fact that when we played in Zimbabwe, I mean, we've seen people from every corner of South Africa and Africa, all colors of people. There was no separation or like, now this one, you stand there, that one, everybody was there. And you know what, Graceland changed that. It changed that because 1994, then Nelson Mandela was released. Because people, they saw an opportunity and they saw the, the change in South Africa to say, look, wow, Paul Simon did it. That man deserve a credit. He, yeah. he deserve a credit. He des I mean, he he showed us our music that was was worth it. He took us to all over the world. You know, some people maybe didn't make it because of the communication, because you know, it's business. You gotta be really on top of your point, you know. Like I mean when I played on the grace and I had to play like still crazy after all these years. Now different <laughs> changes. You know? And I was ready with that, you know, all the all this stuff. So that's why I stayed for this long with Paul because my ear is good and I, I keep learning all the time. I learn and I play with everybody to play this music, to keep practicing. So but the timing was perfect with Paul. Yeah. One of the interesting things I didn't know about you, BK, is that you're doing this this interesting thing called Called, called, called BK and the and the Graceland experience. I mean, there's yes, this. So I'm I'm curious, was that just in celebration of an anniversary, or is this a way to keep that era going? How did you perceive that, and why did you want to put that together? Well, here's here's how this came out. You know, we just finished the the final tour, um, and then I got a call from uh, Philadelphia musicians, and they said, you know, hey. Mr. Kumalo, bring your bass, and uh, we're playing some Graceland stuff, and uh, we love the music. You know, for me, to have the Graceland young people playing, it, it's, it's an educational. It, it, it feels like I did something that young bass players, they can learn my bass part and, and, and not have a fear about learning my stuff. It just gives them joy, because it gave me a joy. And also to, to play this music that I love, very much. That's the reason why I came here. And if anybody calls me to play the grace, then I go play with them because, you know, I feel so good that these people, they welcoming me in their living rooms. Now I'm playing with them. And some some of the musicians, like the drummer is 20 years old. He says, my dad used to, used to <laughs> rock me with the, with the Graceland album. Now I'm playing with you. And I said, you know what? It's amazing, especially American uh, young kids learning this music because these groups were like South African. But now, these kids here, they're playing to honor Paul. This is this is about Paul, to honor this man. And then for me, being a foundation of that record, it makes sense to these kids to say, look, you can do this. Yeah. You know? B.K., talk a little bit about moving to the U.S. When did that happen? I know you were going back and forth for some sessions, and then you decided to move. 
Was that hard for you to do? Was Were things still very difficult with apartheid or was it over by then? I'm not sure I, I, I know the timing of your history of when you decided to move. And I'd be curious what it was like for you to, to be in the States and, and, and have a level of freedom that maybe you, you didn't really experience in, in a good chunk of your life. You know, it, it, it was about me. It was about making my own choices, my own decision. Like, okay, I cannot speak English, but I am going to America. America, it was a, a place that I dreamed about it. You know, even when I was a kid, like 12 years old. You know, I would look at the plane and say, man, I wish this plane can just stop somewhere in the backyard and take me. I want to go to America. And especially in New York, because I thought New York was the whole America. There was no Idaho or, you know. Like yeah, I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian, so it was always New York. New York or L.A., right? That's that's America. And that's what they say. If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere in the world. So my thing was about really the dream. And when I was given the opportunity to, to get on the plane and come to New York, for me, I, I, I said, man, I made it. You know, there's nothing bigger than this now. This This is the biggest thing for me. And I got on the jet, and uh, I, it, it was unbelievable. I remember that night I didn't sleep. I was so exhausted when I got to JFK <laughs> because, and I'm like, where's the America? You know, I mean, we've been flying like 10, 12, 13 hours, but we still not reached there yet. It's amazing. And uh, everything was different on the plane, you know, in the business class or, or, you know, eating nice. And I'm like, I couldn't even, where's the fork goes on the left? I'll eat with my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I learned when I get to America, you know, and once we got to New York, man, it was like unbelievable. I mean, like just hanging out four o'clock in the morning, eating pizza on, on 8th Avenue, or 42nd and 8th Avenue. And I knew it, man. I said, you know what? I'm here. Maybe one day I'll run into Marcus Miller or, you know, all the <laughs> legendary. And then surely enough, he, I saw him. He came to Radio City Hall as we were doing sound check and I think he was on the show. He was doing the show and uh, so somebody tells me, he's like, man, Marcus Miller is, is here. And I know about Marcus from South Africa. And uh, and then he was right behind the curtain and gives me the thumbs up and I knew I'm here. Wow, yeah. <laughs> but and I tell you, you know, like, because it's not about where you come from. That I explain to young people when I even teach them, say, you have to have a journey, you know, your journey doesn't end here. If it ends here, you ending here, you're doing this to yourself. But if you want to go distance, you're going to go distance. You're going to step up. Like my kids, I tell my kids, listen, you go to school, you want to finish the school, you have a degree in college, and then you control your own destiny. But if you don't have that, it's going to be hard. So for me, without any education and learn all these things, I taught myself everything. Nobody spent a lot of time. Until now, living in the States, moving to the States, 1993, got married. Now I got two daughters. So now I had to learn a, a different life, uh, lifestyle because it's different than South Africa. So I really had to learn because I'm open to learn. I don't know much. Life is about learning every day. If you say you know, I don't understand that. You but uh, for me, 
it was about learning. You also have such an amazing career. I mean, there's the education part of it that we, we spoke a little bit about. There's this mentorship program, which, again, we spoke a little bit about. But you went on to play with people like Joan Baez and Cindy Lauper and Herbie Hancock and Mickey Hart, Josh, Josh Groban, Gloria Estefan. You've f- five solo albums with a sixth on its way. It's, it's delivered by the time this will probably be out. You've got a, a brand new solo album. There's a, a lot of diversity in the artists you play with. There's a lot of diversity in your solo albums. And I, I feel a lot of diversity in your new album. What you hear is what you see. And I'm wondering, when it comes to thinking about the bass and all of these ingredients that you have, from your personal experiences to South African music to more traditional music to jazz to, 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 to hearing Jocko, I'm, I'm curious about your taste in music and how it's evolved and how it, how it dictates to a certain degree what you're going to do as a solo artist or who you're going to work with. You know, <coughs> excuse me, all my uh, projects, they come from uh, days off, sound checks, and the people that I played with to learn from them. Because my thing, like I said, you know, for me, it's about learning every day. I get a, a session with Heavy Hancock. I have to adjust myself to be there. Rhythmic, I'm covered. You know, I'm from Africa. You know, rhythm, that's what we start with. Not very much harmony. Maybe now because kids, they Google. They <laughs> know how to play flat and feet or that or whatever. But for me, it's the rhythmic. Once you have that foundation, you can go anywhere. I mean, I recorded the Brazilian uh, album with Chico Cesar with a bunch of Brazilian musicians without speaking the language. They gave me the chat, they gave me the feel, and then I took off and we finished the record. Then I go and work with Eileen Ivers, Irish music. Oh, this culture, I can be that culture too. You know, because I like to learn and not limit myself because when I learn everything, it really helps me to be a better player. And you don't, you, you, because if you limit yourself, then you stop from, you know, from working. You want to keep working. And for me, it's experience that's working now. I go to the studio, look at the chart. If there's a chart, if no chart, then I'm here to create. I'm not there for the money. I mean, I, you know, so many music I've played with many people. I like, could be like, you know, a guy who doesn't talk to nobody because I have so much money. But for me, it's not that. It's about the gift that we were given to give. And people, when I go to the concert and play for people, they're my gift. We're exchanging gifts. So I play for them to say, look, here's the gift that I was given to give it to you. Your gift is driving in traffic and come here and enjoy us and go back home, traffic, you know. So thank you. That's why sometimes after the show, people, they go crazy with me because the road manager is like, stop shaking people's hand. And I'm like, I want to thank them for coming here and listening to my bass because I'm the guy with the big sound on stage, you know. <laughs> so they know, they recognize me and I have to say thank you to them. But you have to keep yourself open and not limit yourself. Like my music mentors of these kids, I take these young kids from different schools here and uh, and I said, listen, I'm not a music teacher. I'm a music mentor that I can show you. Let's, let's start with the scientists that build this instrument. What's in this instrument? How many knobs you got there? Oh, all right. One kid came with a seven string bass and I said, okay, let's, let's work on your sound now. <laughs> 
you know, and I said your bass, we, we, because you have so many strings, it has to sound like a guitar, but you don't want to lose the bottom. So we go to the knobs and I show him things, things that he was not thinking because they all turned the volume down this play. <laughs> you know? But for me, it's okay, now you got the sound, now you can play. But when your sound is not right, don't play because you're going to play everything right, but your sound is terrible. Then nobody's going to pay attention. So let's do that. And I put these kids together. Now, they're going to be opening for me because uh, we started to rehearse, you know, uh, before the pandemic and we got hit with the pandemic. So they never get a chance to perform. But now I have a show coming up on September 2nd, uh, September 12th in Bethlehem. And uh, so I asked these kids to learn at least three or four songs to open the show for me and play in front of their moms and dads and, you know, and then other kids. And let's get other kids from the street and, and give them music, you know. Mm. And uh, th these kids, they love me. They call me sometimes and say, hey, look, can we talk on Zooming? You know, I want to show you what I'm doing. And I said, please, you know, I always have time because it was hard for me to learn instrument. I mean, I had to go to every part of the township. But now these kids, they have the instrument and I'm here to help them. As yeah. I'm, you know, fading down. <laughs> yeah, not that many years ago, BK, I was in New York on some business, and I, re I realized that Stanley Clark was playing, and I went to go see him at the Highline Ballroom, which isn't there anymore, but it was a great venue. And yeah, I, yeah. I was really struck that he only works with young musicians. That was the last one when they before they closed that Highline Ballroom. Great, by the way, great sounding room. I can't believe they closed it. It sounded amazing, but. Um, I was really struck by the fact that Stanley Clark and many other musicians do this, but he really only plays with students. It's it's like his thing. He wants to help people be better players. And so when I hear people like him or you do that, it's very inspiring because it's one thing to play. It's one thing to play on other people's albums, do solo albums, another thing to teach. But that that fourth part, that mentorship is, is the part that's often missing from, from not just music, but every part of the world. Students they're hungry i have my own kids when they get on the piano they play amazing so so i feel like you know working with these young people you give them the opportunity to talk to them and listen to them instead of wanting to be famous but understand the music music is a business it's not just like playing and having drinking and uh, you pay attention you know if you treat this right this will treat you right you have to have a recording studio. You have a, you have to have a better communication. You have to be set up pretty much to, to make it happen. So for us to talk to these kids at the early age, by the time they reach there, they understand what's going on, you know, and they'll play well and they'll play the right music, you know. So, yeah, Marcus Miller did the same thing too. He went on tour with, like, some students, and they play amazing. Amazing. You know, now I tell some like local grown-ups, man, and then they play for like $50 gig. And I said, don't do that. You are grown-up. Let the kids, our kids, play these gigs for that money so that they get experience of playing all the time, you know? <laughs> I'm curious musically how you think about when you play. There's a big difference. And you, you alluded to this earlier, but I'm, I'd like for you to talk a little bit more about this idea of when you're playing in the pocket versus being busy or intricate parts. Because, again, if we're going to go back to an album like Graceland, there's definitely a lot of pocket and groove there. But there's also definitely a lot of really intricate parts that are very, very unique that to this day are, are you know, the, the album or song based off of the bass line. 
So when you're composing and when you're thinking about playing, how do you see the balance between when it's time to be the pocket and when it's time to get a little busy? You look at the song, five minutes long, and you start to make a map, what you want to do. Each and every part of the song, it's gonna be different dynamics. Sometimes you lay back, you don't push too much things. Some, you know, sometimes my groove is not like, I'm, I'm gonna stay with it, the, the, the bass drum, you know, I'm staying with it. You know, sometimes you just let them, you know, like he's ahead, but you like really behind to keep everybody behind. And when your sound is right, and then you look at the spaces in the song, okay, which space you can take. Or have a dialogue with the drama, or you know, or know the song, because you don't want to play a line when somebody's singing unless that line is needed. You know, like things that happens with the diamonds. I played the line because I had the guitar player who was playing the stuff, but then I, I grabbed something and I played, and and it was a space for Paul. He, he didn't say anything, and then when he comes in, comes in after the line, and it just connect. You know, it becomes one thing because it's about really listening and uh, understanding the lyrics. You don't do that when somebody's singing. You just stay with stay with the groove and you're listening and, you know, your tone is right. When the tone is right, you don't even need to do anything. You know, yeah. but you have to you have to feel it <laughs> because somebody else might say, oh, man, what is what the hell is going on? But, you know, with the fretless, really. It just changed everything. I mean, yeah. maybe that wouldn't have happened if he was a fretted. But the fretless sound, even when you don't play too many things, you just, the sound of it is just, I mean, beautiful. You know? Yeah, and there's something about the slapping on the fretless that you do that makes it very unique. There's something about the, the sliding around of the notes that just, it blends in a very unique way. Right now, the fretless too, you know, some people when they play, they, they use too much of their vibrato. My thing is just like really, the finger is not even moving. You're just moving your hand or your, your wrist just to get that little thing, not too much of it. You know, like a little out of, in and out of, out of tune. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like its own version of a, of a dead note almost in a unique way. Yeah. And then I use a lot of ghost notes too. Yeah. Especially like, you know, in some places so that I don't have to let the notes ring all the time. So there's some goats in between there, but it's all about thinking as I'm playing the song, you know. Some songs you just play like that, like um, the song is called My Man Is Gone Now on Hedy Hancock, the Gatron's World Record. I mean, like, I, I just let the long notes because of the piano sustaining and he, the thing he was doing, and I was listening to him. <laughs> and I was yeah. so scared too, because then I'm like, man, I'm right in front of Hedy Hancock. It's amazing. But it was, it was amazing. The, the last thing I want to ask you, because I want to be respectful of your time, BK, is the infamous line, the infamous riff, and you can call me Al. And I was thinking prior to having this conversation with you that I've had the pleasure of interviewing a lot of players who have played on amazing songs and have really added to songs. But I don't know that many players who have had a signature riff like that. That signature thing where you know immediately what that song is and where it's from. And and the signature riff being on an electric bass is even more important. I mean, maybe we could talk about Smoke on the Water from Deep Purple as a line that everyone knows. Yeah. But it's very rare that I actually meet somebody who has a a signature riff or line that is so, in all music, not just bass playing. Do you reflect on that? 
often and think it's crazy that there are certain riffs in the world that everyone knows, and this is one of them, and it's played on the bass, which is kind of strange too. Everything it was about giving at that moment. When I said it was my birthday, and can I play something crazy? And uh, and I was given that that moment, and uh, and then you know slap on the fretless too. You what about a lot of things, the tonation, because can be can be off too. But but what was nice is that the fretless didn't have frets, so there's no frets noise. So when you you play, it's all going to be like a percussive wood with the notes, you know. But it was two people. The engineer had it. And he made something out of it, you know. My thing, I just play the part and hoping that you know, it's gonna it's gonna deliver good. Then when I play those, uh, I think it was maybe about three bars or four, uh, two bars or something, and then he stopped the tape, and then he called me because he had something like this. This could work, so he deserves a lot of credit, Roy Haley, because he he did that, man. I mean, I I just play my part, exciting. And then he stopped me before I finish it. He said, come listen to this. And he turned the thing backwards. I was going to say, then and they reversed the riff too, making it even crazier. <laughs> yeah, it's like mirror myself, you know. <laughs> it was like a mirror of what I played. And uh, and then and it just worked. And the timing was perfect because Paul didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. This is, you know. It just perfect space, perfect timing. I mean, everything is the timing. It was the timing. I mean, I don't know how to describe that, but uh, it, it was the timing between the player and the engineer. The engineer had it, took it, and I took it. Well, it's 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 been such an honor to just talk to you and go down this road. Uh, the new album is called What You Hear Is What You See. There's a great new single for it called Electric Flow. BK, let people know where they can find out more about you. I know you're pretty active online. You've got the mentorship stuff. You're teaching. You're you're going to be touring soon. <laughs> it's it's getting busy for you. Man, I'm I'm getting busy, but you know, um, you know, with this record, you know, of course, the pandemic is the big part of me coming up with this record. What you hear is what you see, because I see myself like, man, you know, it's it's me trying to do this, and and now people that cannot hear us. You know, so now I'm coming up with this uh, this piece, and then so now I have to think about musicians who's gonna play on this record, and everybody's at home looking for work. And for me, it was about give to these musicians who are a friend of mine. Send a track, let them play something, and you pay them. And I mean, I got so many people playing on this record, and all my friends, and they made this music really come alive. And then, of course. It wouldn't have been this great without my friend Maxfield Gus to play the saxophone on this from Philadelphia. So cool. He he he, he just took the music and organized it better and uh, to sound like the way it's sounding. And this this is one of my best record. I mean, the fact that I have really live musicians playing on this is not samples, and and I get a chance to play instrument like this. Um, I'll show you this. This instrument is called the aerophone. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, people won't see this because it's a, it's audio, but it's just, it looks yeah. like it's from the future. It's like <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but this instrument, you know, it's the instrument that, uh, since I've learned the saxophone from my uncle, so I had to have wind instrument. And so I played a lot of this on the record. And then, of course, I got my studio, you know, keyboards and everything. So I just play 
a, a bunch of things. And then that's when I started to send it to musicians and, and then also getting the, the art designer involved. So what we did with the art designer, we say, hey, um, here's the title of Bagidi's album. So can somebody come up with the, the art that's going to match the record? So a couple of people came in, sent me the stuff, but one guy won the prize from Portugal who did the cover design. That's so so cool. for me, it was about think about arts, uh, artists, musicians, and, you know, just let's all work together. You know, let's not be defeated by the crisis. Let's try to get out of it, you know, and, and, and be positive. Even music mentors, teach kids at home, do do something good. So, um, so my album is about that, and it's coming out October. It's going to be really out, but now what they're doing, they're releasing singles, yeah. but you can go to bagidikumalobase.com to check out some things and, and they look, you know, go to Kala, Ukelele, you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. All over the place. And, and we're grateful and thankful place. that you are, VK. So thank, again, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much, too. Thank you. Mm.